Welcome to the Nigel Lee Archive, brought to you by Living Leadership, where every fortnight we share with you a sermon from the late Nigel Lee to encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Here's today's message. Thank you, Jill, very much. Um, Could you turn to chapter 5? of uh, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5. I don't know whether people want the lights on or whether they will want them on later and it will be easy to put them on now or are people entirely happy? I don't normally get such swift action at home when I drop hints. I, I just... <laughs> 1 Corinthians 5. Paul says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit and I have already passed judgment on the ones who did this just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I have written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. Now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a person do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Welcome, plenty of seats in front. <laughs> We've just read 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you would like a copy of, of the, uh, the four of you, so you'll need all the row. Oh, sorry, the, the two and two. If you want to copy the Bible, um, Andy will bring you one. We are having a look at 1 Corinthians 5 to start with, and then we'll move into an, a time of open thanksgiving and response and, and praise. There you are. And, and our subject is church discipline. <laughs> when you look up the back of a hymn book, and you see uh, what bits of Scripture have inspired the various songs, I can tell you there isn't a single bit that I've ever discovered that has been inspired on the subject of church discipline. I don't know what we're going to do after 
because look how you might. There's, there's nothing that has been sort of raised up in Graham Kendrick's heart. No, no, I, I... Church discipline is a very complex and um, difficult responsibility. I mean, it's difficult even within a family, isn't it? Just a normal, ordinary family. I think my earliest memory of my father, probably, one of them, certainly, is of me being over his knee for some characteristic piece of naughtiness and me waiting for the blow to fall. And it didn't fall. So I looked around to see what was happening. And I, I have this vivid picture in my mind of my mother, who was much harder and tougher than my father. My mother said, go, go. <laughs> and, and my father, across whose knee I was, just couldn't bear to bring himself to, to um, apply the stern discipline to my stern. As Paul gets into the chapter, two problems. The first is immorality within the church. Verse 1. In a form that was shocking even to Greek, to pagan Greeks. A young man, apparently a professing believer, well known to everybody in Corinth, was sleeping with his stepmother. Maybe his father's second wife or something like that. And without any sign of repentance. And the second problem that we read of then in verse 2 was the attitude of the church amid this public scandal. They had no sense of grief or, or shame. On the contrary, they were rather proud of their free and easy spirit. I think we can perhaps even hear their kind of language in our imaginations. You know, we're, we're not into the politics of condemnation. We've been set free by Christ from all forms of judgmentalism. The gospel is all about acceptance and forgiveness. The church is a place for everybody. And what's going on? Well, you were all sinners and this is no big deal. Oh. Paul, on the contrary, is absolutely shocked that this should be happening in a church that he planted in Corinth. You see, Corinth is built around the base of um, a huge hill. And perched at the top of that hill is the well-known temple, temple of Aphrodite, which was a, a place of unrestrained immorality. It actually even became part of the ancient Greek worship, the immorality that used to go on there. And Paul is saying, look, God isn't up there. What have I been teaching you from the beginning? God isn't up in that temple on that hill. He is here among you. You, his people, are his temple. You are the dwelling place of God. You cannot allow the standards of that temple, which you have turned your back on, to invade God's own home and house. One of the biggest heartaches in student ministry, which I'm involved with, and in church work, is when that happens. The standards of the temple of Aphrodite, shall we say, or anything else in this world, starts to invade the church. It, it infiltrates and it starts to merge. 
and it's Satan's purpose to make the two in the end indistinguishable. So, from verses 3 to 5, Paul is now giving his apostolic judgment, we may say, and inviting the members of this church to stand with him in this united expression. He says, look, friends, this is tough, I know. The man must be put out of the fellowship. It's as serious as that. Do these things matter? Well, just listen to his language. Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. I have already passed judgment on the one who did this. When you are all assembled, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, also, hand that man over to Satan. Everybody together, not just the elders, and knowing the apostles' mind because he has written to them, we nowadays find ourselves in exactly the same situation, acting in unison, put the man out in some sense, whatever that means. I guess it means that he could no longer take communion and that he would in, in some sense be treated by the rest of them as an unbeliever. Now, why? Why? If the gospel is about forgiveness, if this is the sinner's table, you see, this is our dilemma, why does he say this at this point? Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, Satan, clearly in this world, has some sort of physical powers. They are limited. God is ultimately sovereign. There's never been a moment when he wasn't. We don't believe in sort of dualism. But clearly, when we know our Bibles, we, we know that, say, from the example, the experience of, of Job and others, it is possible for Satan to have limited but painful powers of attack and he's able to do damage against certain um, individuals. So there was a sense in which the cordon of protection of prayer around those who are regarded as members of the church that was going to be withdrawn. Why? This is, this is the key thing. Paul says so that though physically he may suffer Maybe disease, heartache, well, I don't know one. He will be saved as a result. His spirit will be saved come judgment day. We, we must understand this is not Phariseeism. This is not Paul saying, get, get away, you're a wicked immoral man. We can't have people like that infecting our church. No, he's saying, look, this is painful. It's painful for you and for me. But if that young man is amongst you with no signs of repentance at all, in order that he might be saved in the end. This is what's at stake. He ought to be put out. This concern for the gospel and the reputation of the gospel underlies everything, actually, when you read through 1 Corinthians. It will emerge in this series that we're, we're having. Do you remember how in chapter 1 he said, look, you guys are quarrelling. Why are you quarrelling? Don't you understand that that is contrary to the message of the cross? You say, I am of this one. I am greater than that person. The cross levels you all off. How are you saved? Not by being wise and clever, but by the message of the cross. We're all equal at that point. All this exalting of one person over against another that we were looking at um, 
just last week. Look, we're only preachers of the gospel. You make life harder for us if you elevate one above another and so on. All the way through, he is bringing to bear on one problem after another, very modern problems. But the problems that do affect churches, he's bringing the gospel to bear. He's drawing out implications of the message of the cross. This is the astonishing thing about the gospel. It doesn't just save you at some moment in time years ago. It is the very medicine that you need to take to apply it to the things that crop up in the church as the time rolls by. Problems with immorality, problems with disunity, problems with how you relate to pagan neighbours, what you do around this table, how you even handle the operation of spiritual gifts. We will see it all the way through. He brings the gospel to bear. We are very shriveled often in our knowledge of what the gospel really says and the implications of it. She says, look, dear friends, you cannot go and preach a gospel of repentance from sin, turning away from sin to sinners, and then allow or even encourage the opposite among members of the church. How can you do it? There is wrath to come. That's the gospel. And there is grace for those who flee from their wicked ways to the God of grace. You can't somehow combine the two. There must be clear, visible separation. There is an outside the church, and the inside is for those who are committed to holiness. They may not understand everything. They may need patient help. But there has to be that core commitment to walking God's way and to holiness. And you can't combine professing to be a believer and behaving as if you weren't. So he says, bring about the separation which the gospel actually teaches so that the man will understand something and it's not possible to get through to him in any other way and we'll come back to the man later before we finish. Verses 6 to 8, he then turns to problem 2 which you remember was their attitude not just the individual in their midst but then their attitude to the whole thing. He says, look, dear Corinthians, you're boasting about this. Your over-casual attitude is actually as bad as his fornication. We find it difficult. You know, we've gone through, week after week, up to now, four chapters on unity, on love, on uh, not allowing divisions within the church. But Paul is, is so brilliantly balanced he doesn't want you then to fall into the accompanying trap of mushiness. He says, look, there is a time for right disunity. Times when you need to cut yourselves off from certain things. There is a godly and a biblical disunity which we also have to hold on to. Now he says, verse 6, don't you know, he says, that's the, between chapters 3 and chapter 9, he says that ten times. Don't you know? Don't you know yet? The three says, don't you know that you are the temple of God? You believers, don't you realise that when you gather here like this, God is here. You are God's house. Don't you know that? In, in chapter 9, verse 24, he says, don't you know that in a race, everybody runs, but only one wins. They're only going to give out one gold medal per event in the Olympics, so far as I know. You run as if you intend to win. Don't you know that? And in chapter 6, and we'll see next week, that six times he says, don't you know this? Don't you know that? And you guys are knowing anything. 
here he is appealing to a spiritual truth that they ought to have known, but perhaps have forgotten. Don't you know, he says, that a little yeast can infect a whole batch of dough? He's using an analogy. And it does, isn't it? You plant some yeast in, in some... Uh, I'm not, I haven't done this very often recently. Um, I used to when I was a kid, you know. I used to always have that class at primary school where you roll the dough and put the yeast in. And then... Look, he says, this is my analogy. But you will get infected. All of you. Not just the one individual. You're a body. You're a whole patch of dough. You doughy people. If there's yeast in, undealt with, it will in fact spread as yeast does. It causes the whole loaf to rise. It will infect you all, actually, with a casual, loose, moral attitude. We're dumb if we don't think this is the case. What happened at the nine o'clock service, that thing that broke out a year or two ago? It started with a real heart concern to reach lost people in the power of the Spirit and turn them so that they might become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Where have I heard that before? That's how it began. And there are churches not very far away from here which in recent months have lost leaders because of precisely this thing. Many times down through the years we've seen how true this is. Attitudes spread. Yeast infects a whole group. And then he makes allusion to the Old Testament instruction regarding the Passover. You remember how from the book of Exodus when the people were getting ready for their journey of faith from Egypt to the Promised Land. And uh, the Lord said through Moses, now you eat unleavened bread, unyeasted. He said, we haven't got time. This journey is about to begin in the small hours of tomorrow morning. We haven't got time to sit around and wait for the, the dough to slowly rise as you put it by your hearth as if you were going to be around for days. No. Unleavened bread, because this journey starts the moment of your salvation at another level. The moment you get converted, you are on a spiritual journey, no looking back. You need to throw off the things that hinder, the sin that so easily besets us. And, so. and yeast came for the Jews to symbolize the old life, the old pre-conversion life of rebellion and, and despair and so on. Old Egypt. And later the Jews had a ritual whereby every night, Passover, as it was about to begin, the parents would hide a little piece of yeast somewhere in the house or a piece of old bread or something. And the kids had to be sent around the house to find it. They'd look under the bed covers and in the cupboards and top of the wardrobe. And eventually they would find this piece and then it had to be formally thrown out in the street uh, by the kids. Just to teach them from the youngest age that the old yeast of the old year was to be chucked out. Now says Paul, look, apply this to yourselves. Your Passover sacrifice has already been sacrificed. You're late in getting rid of the yeast. Jesus has already been put to death. Our Passover lamb. Don't celebrate the Passover with the old bread that belonged to the old life of malice and wickedness. Instead, we must be committed to holiness, to sincerity and truth, he says. So now you can see the, the plain 
straightforward application of a chapter like this. In a church like ours, or any church, we have a responsibility. It's a shared responsibility. It doesn't only belong to the elders or the leaders. It's a shared responsibility to guard the moral reputation of the gospel publicly. What damage has been done in the cause of Christ in recent years by people who should have known better, who have allowed the moral reputation of the cross, of the gospel, of that only message of salvation which has come from God's heart for the saving of the world, they've allowed it to be dirtied and, and smirched with unjudged behavior in the church. Let it be unmistakably clear, says Paul, there's to be a line drawn in society. Now the practices of immorality, greed, gossip, drunkenness, cheating, and I, I quote the verses, they ought to be outside. And the person who claims to be a Christian, and yet continues in those things, is to be an outsider too. So now he says, you'll come on to this more next week, he says, start learning the delicate, difficult business of wise, discerning judgment within the church. Not forever sounding off about outsiders. Leave them to God. God is the judge, he says. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Verse 12. Are we not to judge those inside? Take care for the moral reputation of the gospel as borne out by those inside. Practice, in other words, on yourself. I'm not saying he says that you have to stop associating with all the immoral gossip people. I mean, <laughs> then you'd have to leave the world, he says. Just living, you, you are associating with people like that. That's normal. How are we going to fish unless we go with the fish up? But as far as the church is concerned, that is to be what in another place in the New Testament is called the pillar and the ground of the truth. It's to hold up the gospel gloriously. Now, what happened to the man? Because that's what some of you are thinking. The man that was put out. If you turn over to chapter uh, 2 of 2 Corinthians, second letter written maybe a couple of years later, and this Discipline has evidently worked. Verse 5. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as grieved all of you, to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now, instead, you ought to forgive him, comfort him, so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we're not unaware of his schemes. Many believe that that is a reference to the man himself, who was put out for a while. The cordon of protection, as I said, was withdrawn. And it brought him to his senses. And the man was then brought to a point of repentance. 
And Paul is now saying, he's restored. Welcome him back. As we sit around this table, and let me end with this. We all come as sinners. Don't we? Hey? <laughs> we can rejoice in the ongoing power of the message of the cross. The gospel has not only saved us from destruction and judgment, it is that message and the principles embodied in that, what the Lord has said and done, shown us in himself, done for us by his grace. As we ponder that, we are saved in a continuing sense from division, from displeasing God. We can thank the Lord as we gather around the table that God's goal and concern is always for our salvation. He may use tough medicine. Sometimes. Why should he not? It's what it takes. But his goal, whatever happens, is that we might know in full measure his salvation. Imagine, as we finish, supposing we had been through such a thing. And the heartache and the sadness and the difficulty, the sheer difficulty of being called to identify with God in his holy judgments. But God's ways work. And imagine such a, a man back amongst us, together, tonight, for the first time around this table. A man we've known. A man we've known go away, trapped into the ways of Satan. But back, forgiven, welcomed, accepted. Would any of ourselves better than him? No. Would we be glad that he was back? Surely. This is the sinner's table. God will use extraordinary measures sometimes to uphold his gospel, to purify his church, to rescue people who are wandering off but can be brought back and to glorify himself in this world. And as we sit around such a man, we say, there but for the grace of God go I. But let our focus be on the grace of God and not on us or him, but on the Lord Jesus. This is such an important thing and it's time for us to ponder it at this time of year. Do you remember that line in the first drama that we, we had? Does it really matter where we end up? Well, you wouldn't plan a holiday like that. So why plan the whole of your life like that? The God who created for us the rhythm of rest and work in order to meet the physical and emotional needs of, of our, our being, because we are important to him. God has in the same way made provision for our spiritual needs. And that provision lies in Jesus Christ, his only Son. His complete, satisfying provision for the spiritual side of our whole nature. Just looking, let me tell you as a satisfied shopper, it's him you need to find.
Let me mention, as I draw towards a close, um, some holiday reading for you. Now, you may feel that you want to cover one or two of these up with brown paper when you sit and read them on the beach. I don't know. Your quest for God. Is there a God? Is there evidence that might satisfy the layman? The kind of person like me? How would I know if there was a God that that God really loved me and cared for me? Give yourself time to ponder those kind of questions. Your Quest for God by Richard Bennett is a book to take away on holiday with you. Or some of you like reading biographies. Here's a new one. Did you see, was it in the Sunday Times um, a week or two back? The account of a woman who had also, I think, been a television presenter. She, she, was, she describes herself as life in the fast lane. She had many of the things that modern, fizzing, rapid, high-tech, industrial Britain thinks as successful. She's now working among the street children in Brazil. That, in fact, is what she is entitled, the book. Sarah de Carvalho, if I pronounce her name right. Fascinating story, which was uh, reported fully in the newspaper only a while back. Read a biography of someone who found God in the midst of the normal things of life, and it radically changed the direction in which they were going. Or maybe you like these kind of heavyweight books. This is for the, the specialist. Frightens me, this one. But some of you might enjoy this. It's by John Houghton, who for many years was head of the meteorological office in Britain. He's a fellow, he's got the gold medal from the Royal Society of Astronomy. He's the chairman of the Intergovernmental Conference on um, Pollution. And, I mean, he's a mega brain. Would you like that? I can see one or two people, maybe no more than two, who, <laughs> who would really not mind sitting reading a book like this on the beach. The Search for God, Can Science Help? Full of fascinating diagrams. He's got a chapter in the middle, I just opened it. What happens when we pray? Here's a scientist looking at these kind of things, answering the kind of questions which we feel remain out there still unanswered by Christians. It isn't true. There are dozens and dozens of uh, top scientists and academics who have got answers to those kind of questions. The search for God can science help. Or here's a book to help some of us, The Sixty Minute Father. Let's ponder a book on how to be a better dad. It's never such a slim book. Honestly, you can read this in about 20 minutes if you weren't being interrupted by the kids. <laughs> Rob Parsons is a poet, a writer, also some of you may have seen him on television. The Sixty Minute Father, an hour to change your child's life. I don't think one hour would actually probably do the business, but maybe he means an hour a day or something like that. Why not get hold of one of these books and pursue this seriously for yourself? We need to find God. We need to find God in the way he has revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ. We need to hear him speaking to us, calling us to come to him. Come to me, you heavy, laden, burdened, I am the one that can give you that rest and refreshment and cleanness and forgiveness and new start deep in your own soul. That's the challenge of this morning. And with that, we are more or less going to end. I'm going to ask Dee to come and sing a song as we just ponder these things and the challenge of where are you going in your life, ultimately, do you have time for God? What is he saying to you? This song sums up what we want to say this morning. 
knowing you, Jesus. There is no greater thing. Then I'll come back up for a couple of sentences right at the end after D has done. What? Just looking, why, why do we? It is because we are human. There's something inside us that starts to ponder these big questions and start looking for God. You will have time, won't you? Don't allow the rest of the summer to go by without setting aside time to read and think and pray. Even if it's just like Dan prayed, God, wherever you are, I'm here, do something. I want to be found. You could buy one of those books at the end. Or you could talk to, perhaps if you came with a friend who comes here more regularly, ask them, how did you become a Christian? And if they don't know what to say, come and tell me who they are. (laughs) Or come and ask me. I brought with me a number of copies of a little booklet called Starting with Christ if you'd like to know how to become a Christian yourself. This is what we're made for. Life is not designed to be, even at its best, just like one of our big, long, empty holidays. We're meant for eternity. With Christ. Knowing you, Jesus. That's the point. Now we're finished. There's an opportunity for coffee, squash, whatever, books, chat. We can stay around in this place for as long again as you've been here. But let's make this summer special for many of us. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. The Nigel Lee Archive is brought to you as a podcast by Living Leadership. For more information on the Nigel Lee Archive or Living Leadership's other ministries, please visit www.livingleadership.org. God bless.